Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm I'm actually I'm so excited for multiple reasons about this podcast. The first is that the I met Tim in 20 two, or 2009 when I was a personal trainer at the Wellness Center and he's in a wheelchair and it was my first client or person I've ever ever trained in a wheelchair. So there's a lot of growth and learning there, but most importantly over the 2 years I was working with Tim, he just had a knack for connecting with people. I've always I was always wondering how did he do that? How how does he do that? And what is his trick? And how did he get to be this person he is? And so we spent the entire podcast talking about that because I've had issues um, with barriers that I have within myself, uh, letting, putting those down, which is, I, is the key to connecting with other people. And even more impressively is Tim has created a whole business out of this called Open Doors Consulting, where he teaches teams and people how to connect and create these environments uh, for people to grow. Because when your guards are down and you're able to connect with other people, in my own words, it seems like magic happens. And I, I found that in my pole vault tribe. I found that I'm starting to find that in mental health as my tribe continues to grow. I had it in college. I had a little tribe in high school of people I connected with, my friends. And man, Tim, Tim just, he's on a whole different level. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did from the fact that I, A, I got to learn Tim's tricks. And then two, I got to connect with an old friend I haven't talked to in years. So I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to support what I'm doing, onewholelifemedia.com has the podcast. Grab a shirt, share it with friends, spread the word about mental health, and, and it also helps support what, what I'm doing. I'm my own sponsor. It's great. <laughs> and I'm trying to build this tribe, so tribe it up with me. Guys, without further ado, I am pleased to, to share with you Mr. Tim McHugh. Confucius said we have two lives, and the second begins when we realize that we only have one. We're all given one whole life. And when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully, we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health. One Whole Life with Sean Francis. Tim. I was wondering if I could start with the first time we had a workout or a training together. Can the first, I, I, I have to tell the story. The first thing you ever told me was, I am going to fall. It might be off of a bench. It might be down the stairs and it might be out of my chair, but I am going to fall and I don't want you to freak out. That those are your, those, those are almost your exact words. And I was like, Okay. And you were the first person I've ever trained that was in a wheelchair, you know, so it was kind of scary for me in a way too. Like, what can I do and what can't I do? And then sure enough, week three, you drop one dumbbell and you fall <laughs> off the bench and I'm like, oh my God, like I run over there and I grab you and I'm like, are you okay? What, what can I do? And you just look up behind you and you go, I told you not to make a big deal and freak mm -hmm. out about it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's like and but that was like i the moment that happened all that other little worry or concern i had about working with you like went away it was like oh that that was that one little barrier that he told me but i didn't trust him until you actually fell <laughs> fell off the bench <laughs> which is kind of wild i think 
It's funny that you remember that because I tell that story now anytime I train with someone new. And I'm like, so this will probably happen at some point and we'll be fine. And they're like, oh my God, that happened. And I'm like, not only did that happen, but I'm <laughs> the guy who it happened to. So clearly it worked out okay. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it I, t- every time I talk about you, that's the first story I always tell just because. I think I think it just kind of shows the type of person you are one and then two it was like I'm not supposed to say this but you were my favorite person I ever trained for the sheer fact that like you were training like an Olympic athlete like you had that same mentality and you were willing to try something insanely new like and I and I've never trained like I said I've never trained anybody like you so we were doing things like maybe it's best if we start like if you feel comfortable, like, why are you in the wheelchair? Like what's, what's going on there? What, what kind of obstacles are you, yeah. are you working with? So I was, um, I was born 11 weeks prematurely. I was supposed to be born at the end of May. I was born in the middle of March. Um, I was born with cerebral palsy. I weighed three pounds, six ounces when I was born. So I was not very big. Born early, born with uh, with CP, but primarily affected uh, by my lower body. I do have some impact on my upper body, but it's primarily from the waist down. Uh, I do use a walker for short distances of moving, but for most of my movement and for most of the time that you and I worked together, Sean, I was in a power chair um, just because getting around a big campus like North Dakota State was um, – way easier in a chair than it would have been walking. I could so, imagine. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Especially in January when we're covered in snow. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, born with, uh, born with CP, but uh, I've, I've always looked at the world from a standpoint of it's a lot more about what I can do uh, than, than what I can do. Uh, one of the things people always ask me about is like, do you ever regret not being able to, to move in a traditional way or walk in a traditional way or do any of those things? And my answer is no, uh, because I don't have a before and after. I don't have a what I remember. I, I know I have what I had when I started, and I've always looked at it from the standpoint of everything I get is something building on what I had before. Um, I don't look at living with a disability is living from a, a deficit perspective. I've always looked at it as let's start with what I got and let's build on what's there. Did you always have that like mentality when you were young too, or did that develop over time? <laughs> no, I, I think I've always had it. I, I shared this story and when, when my mom listens to this podcast, she'll probably cringe, but uh, um, there was this time, so I had a, a surgery when I was years old to make walking easier. I had significant back surgery uh, to make some changes to make walking easier. And after surgery, one of the things I was supposed to do was just get out and walk. My, my therapist wanted me to get upright, get moving, use all these muscles that I had never used before. And so my parents would bring me on errands to like the grocery store or whenever they went out on town, they just brought me along because having to walk and keep up was, was good for me. 
And there was one time I remember um, we were leaving the grocery store and it was July in Iowa, so it was hot. And I was walking out across the parking lot. And at some point in my four-year-old brain, I was like, it's hot. I'm tired. I'm done. So I just in the middle of the parking lot like, nah, we're done doing this. And my mom kept walking. And about the time that I heard the car turn on, something in my little head went, uh-oh, she's not kidding. Like, if I don't go, like, she won't leave me here. Um, and I think that <clears throat> I share that story because I think it shows the mentality that um, my, my family always had. And I mean that from the standpoint of we're going to do everything we can to accommodate, but you still need to do what you can to keep up. And I, and I think that that's really what started building that mentality. And then just over years and experiences, I was able to keep kind of growing that perspective. So your parents set the, the, the groundwork for you essentially very young at that point. Uh, yeah, very young. I mean, one of those things where disability was, was absolutely my life. They're 100% aware of that, 100% supportive of all of the things we needed to do, but never let it be an excuse or a reason not to participate as fully in the world as as I had the opportunity to. Was it, was it, was school difficult at all for you too? Or was, was, did, did you kind of just go, go in there going like, I, this is just who I am. And I, I guess um, I, I've never seen it through your perspective either. So I'm just trying to, you know, <laughs> see. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were things that we had to, to adapt, obviously, like, uh, most, like school desks when you go into like a, or the, it has like the desk on top with the little like drawer underneath where you put your folders or whatever. Well, that didn't work for me because I couldn't pull out things that I couldn't see. Mm. I always use just like a giant tabletop desk. So I just, I just had like an oversized table okay. um, desk. Um, I, one of the things we did, cause I, you probably remember this from when I trained, I have really bad fine motor skills. Um, so flipping back and forth when you were in like elementary school and you have to look up like spelling words and stuff like that. That was really difficult. So one of the things we did was we spiral bound all of my school books so that they could lay flat so that like when you flipped them, the pages wouldn't just. Oh, cool. Back down on top of you. Um, so we had to do, I mean, we had to do things like that to adapt sort of how I learned. Um, but but in terms of actually doing the learning, uh, that part was never difficult, but sometimes adapting how I shared the information or how I communicated what I knew would, would look different. That's fascinating for me because when we were at the wellness center again, there was, I, I remember this and I don't know if you do, but the elevators didn't work one day and you had yep. no way to get upstairs. And just, and, and, I hope I don't sound like um, inconsiderate about this or, you know, You're but I, I, it just didn't, it, I would have never thought about that because it didn't affect me, you know, like I, I would have never had that at all. But because you were my client, it like opened up this whole new world, like, oh my gosh, t- 
Tim doesn't have access to get upstairs and we need to get upstairs because that's where our med balls are and that's where we stretch and that's where we, we have to be upstairs. We cannot do this downstairs, <laughs> you know? And, and I got like upset, like, how can they get the how can how can they make it so Tim can't go up you know like I, like it was I was on your team and I was ready to fight you know and because I was an employee there I was like we have to get these elevators working like anything in your power and I've never seen you upset before so that was also like the first time I've seen you like this is just ridiculous like how how can they not do this and and from that moment on like you changed my life where I I look for that all the time now. Like, is there a ramp to go into this store? Is, is there a way to get up to, you know, this building up here for you? And um, do, have you run into a lot of that? Or uh, like, I know you're on campuses quite a bit, but are most places, are they fit for you? Like to be able to use them? Uh, I mean, the, the short answer to your question is no. I think we have a, a long way to go in terms of, Accessibility. I mean, one of the one of the frustrating things in that I still work through a lot as I travel through campuses and communities is um, particularly accessibility of restaurants. Um, oftentimes, I will choose a restaurant not specifically based on what's on their menu, but based on whether or not I can use their bathroom if I need to, um, because nobody's pizza is worth not being able to pee. <laughs> like, like bottom line like um spicy pie is so pretty close maybe though man <laughs> I'm, just, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just kidding <laughs> yeah, pretty close. um but uh but i think we we still have a long way to go in terms of making spaces more accessible um, the disability rights movement as compared with other um, kind of civil rights movements is pretty young uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act was only passed in 1990, so within both yours and, and my lifetime. Um, and so it, it hasn't had the history yet. Uh, people haven't had the opportunities to be educated in the same ways. Um, so I do think we, we still have a lot, of, a lot of room to grow when it comes to accessibility. So I'm a little ignorant to that act, but what, what does that entail or what does that cover to help protect your rights? No, what it, the, a simple explanation, it, it tries to make the world more, um, more available to individuals with all kinds of disabilities. Could okay. be mobile related, could be um, learning related, um, tries to put in some, baseline standards about, like you mentioned, doors, elevators, the widths of doorways is a big one. Uh, you know my chair is pretty wide. I hit things a lot. <laughs> yeah, I've been hit a few times by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, widths of doorways, trying to make uh, make spaces, more spaces more available, um, particularly public spaces, uh, to to individuals who, who navigate the world differently and who uh, navigate with disability. Hmm. That, so I, I'm, I don't know if this is going to be completely left, but with all this thing, with all these things happening, I know you, ever since I've known you and you wrote it to me, like in the email that we were going to do too, is that you always focus on what you can do. So when, when you do that and you see an issue like that, and instead of, is, how do you approach that? Do you just focus on, all right, how do we solve this problem instead of, hey, there's this giant problem here and recognizing it or do you name it first and then here's what we can do or 
Like, what do you do in a situation like that? I think it it really depends on on how big the issue is. I'm not going to say that I don't get frustrated because there are absolutely times that I do. Um, You, um, you, along with a a select group of other folks, can vouch for the times you've gotten me uh, from a pissed off text. It doesn't work yeah. uh, the, way, the way that I wanted it to. Um, so I do, I do take that moment to, to sort of process those emotions and allow myself to feel uh, the frustration or, or disappointment that comes with that. And then once that time has, has passed, it becomes, okay, whether I'm happy, sad, angry, whatever, this thing is still in the way of what I'm trying to do. So... How do I either find a way around it or uh, find someone who can help me solve it or um, change my approach so I'm focused on on something else? Is, I, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, is this is, is part of this what you're trying to do with the Open Doors Consulting that you just started? Because I think I have this written here, and you just you it's literally brand new, like June twenty eighth of this year. Yeah, you started so this within uh, within the last, almost exactly three months now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that we're uh, working with Open Doors, but yeah, that is one of the reasons I started uh, Open Doors Consulting is because I want to start the conversation more in depth about accessibility, about what it means to design. Uh, spaces and communities where anybody, no matter how they navigate the world, can be the best and full and most complete version of themselves uh, without conform to what someone else is looking for, what someone else is expecting, um, and just to elevate the conversation around what it means to make spaces uh, more accessible and to get people to have some of those thought processes like you said you think about things differently because of the time that we spend uh, training yeah. and I want to use the conversations that I have through consulting with open doors to um, get other people thinking about those same things because yeah. that's what it's going to take to really start to move the needle on, on accessibility one of the things that I'm, I'm focusing on with open doors is that I think we've gotten relatively good at being baseline inclusive <laughs> communities. I want to start conversations where we talk about what does it mean when someone truly feels like they belong in a community? Not just you're included, but what does it mean to, to truly feel like you belong? with a group of people or, or in a particular community. What does that, what does that feel like for you? I think the, the closest feeling that I can, can connect to belonging is, and this is going to probably sound a little weird, so just hang with me. Yeah, but, I'm hanging. Um, but it's, it's a sense of relief. It's a sense of peace. It's a sense of comfort of, I can be me. I can do what I do. There's no judgment. Uh, there's people have a willingness to help without seeing me as less of a human being. That uh, I think that that's one of the areas where I struggle is that so often people will um, 
want to help, but in doing so, they make me feel bad for, for needing, needing help or needing to do things differently. I'll use an example from when we, when you and I trained together, um, you, we trained a different, we trained outside of the box. We were throwing stuff. We were moving stuff. We were, um, we might've been stretching things. We didn't know we were supposed to be stretching. (laughs) Doing, doing a whole lot of, if you looked at it from an outside perspective, unconventional things, but you still pushed me to succeed at an elite level. You still wanted me to maximize my potential as an athlete. The fact that we were doing it differently, the fact that you were being forced to adapt as a trainer didn't diminish who I was as a person. You weren't, you weren't changing your standards because of who I was as a client. You were changing your methods. And I think that's, that's the the bottom line when it comes to belonging is don't devalue the person that's in that space, change the way that you approach the person in that space. So does, do you think that starts with the, the individual or the, the, the other person, the, the other or the group around? I think it starts with the other. When I talk okay. about um, the difference between inclusion and belonging, Inclusion is when the focus is on the individual who needs the change. So that put the focus on me as the individual with, with the disability, with the limitations. When we think about how do we create communities where people belong, the way we do that is when the majority starts asking themselves, how can we open up our group to welcome more people? Instead of Putting the, putting the pressure on the individual to, to break their way into our group or to conform to what we're doing, how do we open up what our group is doing to welcome this person? Yeah, that makes sense. I, it's like, um, I, 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 I think it was 2000, I, I'm going to talk about this in every podcast because it was so powerful for me, but I did a year of Zen meditation and it was all about non-judgment and accepting others for just the way they are, whether it is that mask that they have and you can see like, oh, they're playing a character right now, you know, but that's okay because they feel like uncomfortable showing their real selves and having compassion for that. And um, it it kind of it kind of feels like you're saying that a little bit where you're going, you, you see this someone for who they really are versus, you know, what you think you should do, right? Like, I feel like brains get in the way sometimes of that true connection of, of authentic connection, if that makes any sense. You know, like, I, I guess for me, I'm always, I'm trying to always be aware of myself of like when I'm playing that character you know there's uh, on my pole vault vlogs i'm like hey welcome to the pole vlog my name is sean francis here we're going to talk about pole vault today and there's like this goofy character and it's a part of me but it's this heightened part and it's funny when i go to pole vault camps or meets now people expect that guy and he's not there you know like i i can only play that you know uh like heightened version of myself for a certain amount of time. And then as what ends up happening is people expect to connect with that guy and he doesn't really exist. And then like, it takes a little bit longer for him to connect to this. You know, like this is about as as real as I get right now is talking to you. And there, I have a good story with one of my buddies. Um, He 
we were in California for the Mount Sac relays. He invited me mm-hmm. to stay at his house and he goes, you know, you can stay at night um, just because we got some things we got to do. We got to do. And I was like, yeah, no problem. It'd just be nice to meet you. So I stay at this guy's place in uh, Dana Beach, uh, California. And um, after the first day, he goes, you're not as crazy and wild as I thought you were going to be. You know, you can stay the rest of the week if you want. And he like opened up the door for the rest of the week. So <laughs> and then he told me later, he's like, I thought that crazy guy was going to be in my house for like a night. And I was like, that's about as much as I could handle. And then when I realized you're not that guy all of the time. And I was like, oh man, I, I really like who you are. But it took like breaking down that wall to be able to do that. And so that's why that question kind of came up is it might, I, I'm, I might be arguing with you a little bit, but I feel like it's both. Like you have to have that self-awareness to be able to have someone connect with you. Yet at the same time, you have to be aware that if you're being inclusive or, you know, rejecting people. I don't know if, if you have a sense of that too at all. I think that does make sense. And, and your whole thought about people performing makes, makes a lot of sense. And there's one, I don't know if you've done a lot of reading about um, the kind of in, in disability studies and, and that area of research, but mm-hmm. uh, there's generally speaking, there are two narratives around disability that the the general public tends to be okay with. Uh, one of those is kind of the 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 pity narrative, the narrative where someone is okay with disability because in their mind, they're able to go, I don't have it as bad as that guy or poor Tim for for being in a chair or whatever the the case is. Or the other accepted narrative around disability is uh, what is termed the the super crip philosophy, which is where we're comfortable around the person with disability who climbs Mount Everest with one arm. And does the thing that we consider inspiring or um, awe-inducing in some sort of way. And and I want to create those environments where you don't have to be either one of those things. What what did you call the second one? Super what? Uh, Super Crip is the... Super Crip? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of the the term that you'll see in the literature where we're we're okay with the, the inspiring version. We're okay with seeing the athletes who are Paralympians and who are doing amazing things or the guys you watch on YouTube that do pull-ups while sitting in their chair and they pull up their entire chair um, with them. And and both of those things have their place. Both of those identities have their place, but I'm trying to create a space where, where the middle is okay, where you don't have to be either one of those. You don't have to be the recipient of, sadness and grief and pity and things like that. But you don't also have to be superhuman. Yeah. You show up and just be. You just want to, you just want to be seen as a, you want to be seen as a human, but like, that's it. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I, and I can relate to that in some aspect where I wanted to just quit pole vault altogether. Cause people just saw the pole vault guy. They wanted me to perform or they wanted Sean Francis, the pole vault guy. And, and I'll be honest with you, I get so sick of talking about pole vault sometimes, you know, like I just, to the point where 
I don't know if you've ever eaten too much of one food or something and you're like, if I have to mm. smell another cookie, I'm going to just throw up. Pole <laughs> vault does that to me sometimes where you go, there's more to me than just pole vault. And I wrote it in my book too. It's like pole vault's just something I do. It's not who I am. And I, yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. I just, you want to be seen as a whole person, not just a section of yourself, right? Yeah, I, you, you bring up something super important because I think about disability in the same way. Okay. Yeah, I have a disability. I use a chair. Uh, that is 100% a piece of who I am. It doesn't go away. When I, when I wake up tomorrow, I'm still going to have CP. When I wake up five years from now, I'm still going to have it. Um, but it's one piece of who I am. I'm also an educational professional. I'm also an athlete. I'm also... Um, hopefully a decent friend and family member. Um, I'm all of those things. And so I, your, your idea of this is one piece of who I am absolutely resonates with, with how I look at things. So like, so I, I've kind of gotten to this idea. It was like, I can't change other people. You know, like I've almost, I don't want to say given up, but I, I used to think, if I can teach people how to do this and they see it, then I can be the one who can like help them change. I know that's, I, I'm starting to think that's irrational now. And I'm starting to move towards like, uh, who said, I think, I think it was Gandhi who said like, be the change you want to see in the world. Like, sure. so if you, that's kind of been my approach now is even with this mental health project that I'm doing. I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to experts. I want to learn all the information I can. And three years ago, it started as if I get enough information and if, from all these experts of, of people who know mental health and connection and authenticity, I can give it to all these people and then I can help them change. And I've kind of gotten to this point where maybe I should be change the like tweak it a little bit is learn from everybody so I can help change myself to be the best version I can be and almost, and if people want to follow suit, they can, but I can't force change. I don't, do you, can, do you feel like you can force change? Cause you've worked in multiple universities as RAs and all sorts of other things where you're directly impacting people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know if I can change P I mean, at the end of the day, people control their own. I mean, it goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah. But they control how I move through the world on a daily basis. I control what I choose to, to focus on. I do think I can be a catalyst for conversation, whether or not that conversation leads to, I don't know. Um, but I do hope that I can at least get people to, to think differently, to consider perspectives. Been, whether or not they do anything with it, I don't know. Um, people always ask me when I, people will call after I've done a consulting workshop or something and say, how do you think it went? I'm like, well, I don't know. So much of, of that is based on what do they do when I leave the room? Right. Um, I, I think what I can help them do is think differently, whether or not they choose to act on that information, change their thought process, change their perspective. That's up to them. But, but I do, I do hope I can be a catalyst for conversation. So you use it as like, I'm just going to give you this little nugget of maybe a different way to think about something. And then 
whether it's a seed that grows into something or not, you know, they they essentially have to make the decision with their life if if it was powerful enough to make the change. That's that's how you're approaching it. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good way. That's exactly my my goal. And I, I see this say this when I go uh, work with groups. Is my goal is to be a catalyst for conversation. Where that conversation ultimately goes is, is up to you as an organization. Um, and maybe it's through one of my workshops. Maybe it's through uh, a friendship like you and I have that uh, that we're able to see the world differently and and think about i mean you said when you walk into a a building now you're like where would this go how could this work yeah always man every every time would this does this make sense and for me that's because if i get enough people that start to ask those questions maybe we'll start to move the needle yeah, well, I feel like you already are. So, with these workshops that you're doing with Open Doors Consulting, like what, what, how are you trying to create um, communities, and what are you doing at these um, clinics or consultations that you're doing? Yeah, well, it depends on a little bit on who the group is. Um, I, I just got done with um, meeting with a couple. Uh, student organizations here where I currently work at Illinois State, and I'm doing a couple more tomorrow, actually, um, where we're going to talk about how do you create a culture of belonging within your student organization. As we're starting the year and you're recruiting, how do you create an organization that people feel like they want to belong? Um, And so with students, we talk about things like that. Uh, I've done other workshops where I have... uh, met with uh, individuals who have just said, give us a snapshot of a day in the life of somebody who uses a chair. Give us more insight to what that experience is. Um, Sometimes I've met with groups and we've done an actual practical analysis of a space. They've said, walk through our gym and tell us what isn't accessible. Said, "Um, go on our campus tour and tell us what isn't accessible. Sometimes Sometimes it's more practical. Um, sometimes it's more, I would say, thought-based or conceptual. It really just depends on what what that group is is wanting or, or needing. Okay. Can can I, can I ask a little bit? Like, how do you create that? Com- you know, you were talking about creating a community of belonging within the student body. Like, what kind of things can you do for that? Because I've talked to people outside of college who have been in college. Uh, like, uh, my wife, she went to. Um, like a, a community college. So it wasn't this big college where I think back to college. And I don't know if you feel like this, Tim, cause you're, you're still, you're still in it. You're in that kind of environment. It's awesome, but I miss it. I miss being able to go to a class, seeing a group of people and you could kind of be like a drop that, you know, a drop of water that goes into that other drop of a big bowl of water, you know, where you're like, Oh, I'm connected to this one now. And then class is over and you go to pole vault practice. And then that, drop of water gets sucked into this other one and it felt like when i was there i didn't have to wear a mask i didn't have to play a character i didn't have to be this guy I could just be myself and you could go from these groups to groups to groups within this giant group called college and just feel completely comfortable and free and outside of college now 
it's it's hard for me to find that and i wish it existed <laughs> you know like with and i don't and maybe it's just within the community you know i think some people find it maybe with kids and they and their kids start doing sports or something like that but have you talked to people about how to do that potentially outside of college or what do you do to the people who to create that community within the student body too i think i think the first thing uh, the first thing I always ask groups to do is to reflect on when did you, because belonging is a difficult thing to, to define. When I was first starting this work, I was like, I know it's a thing. I know it's a feeling, but, but how do I define the feeling? And so I start by going through a lot of exercises with people to get them to reflect upon when did they feel like they belong. And I use some examples um, from my own uh, from my own experience to kind of get their thought process moving and, and get them to reflect on when did you feel like you belong? Okay. And they start giving those examples. And then we break that down and we say, okay, what was what was it about that experience that felt supremely comfortable or relaxing or relieving or whatever? Um, whatever the case is. And then once they've broken that down to what was it about that experience, we start to think about, okay, how do you create that? If you've felt it and you know what it feels like, how can you create that? How can you emulate that for, for other people? And depending on where that conversation goes, then we oftentimes uh, start to talk about the practical things of, of event planning specifically around like is your location wheelchair accessible how far away is your location if someone didn't have a car how would they get there um do you have an accessible bathroom because if you're gonna have a three-hour event you're gonna have to use a bathroom at some point in time um and so i think you move from the you get them to reflect on the feeling you get them to start thinking about, okay, how could I, to relate back to what you said about being the change you want to see, okay, how can I create that for someone else? If I know what those feelings are, how do I then reciprocate or share that with someone else? And once we've moved past that, it's, okay, what does this look like in a practical sense? What kind of behaviors do I have to change? What kind of physical barriers do I have to remove? in order to create this environment. Is it, do you, have you found that that's hard for people to do, to change what's, whatever's within them to create the belonging? I, I think it is because, uh, I think it is because people don't like to change. Change is scary. Uh, letting, because to, to truly create belonging, like we talked about, the group has to change itself to welcome in others. And letting go of parts of who we are. And I don't know if you've experienced this as you um, transition through your experience, particularly with pole vault. Um, well, there's times you're sick of it. It was a huge part of who you were for, for a really long time. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying I, I hate pole vault by any stretch. I love it, actually. And I know it's, it's created this conversation with you, actually, because without pole vault, I wouldn't have gone to NDSU and I wouldn't have gone, you know, I went to, went to grad school for sure. And, you know, so yeah, there's so many gifts from it, but it, 
I, but when I was, yeah. when I was as it as it's taken on a, for a while, you had it from the, the athletes land, and I'm the one, I'm the one jumping high and using big poles and bending them in half and launching myself. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and then as that changes, letting go or, or changing how do you do things is, is a scary thing. And asking people, even though it's ultimately for the greater good, changing my group to be more accepting of other people is ultimately a good thing. So do you think that I comes... Think scary. Yeah. Do, does it come from a sense of threat, do you think, for people? Of we have what we have. It's great, whether it's a group of people or whatever it is. And if we let somebody new in we don't know them and we can't trust them and there's not consistency there yet because that develops time and trust. Is is that what, do you think that's what the biggest barrier is? Is that the change that's making it hard? I think some of it's about the person. I think some of it's about we have to do things differently and we don't know how to do that. Um, thinking back to when you and I trained together, um, I don't know if you had any fear or, or uncertainty about training with me because most of the workouts you created for me, you can't find in a book anywhere. I don't they, think they exist. We, I, we literally made them up together. Like, they, what do you they, need? They, well, what, what do you need to do to get your body to function at, at an optimal level? Yeah, exactly. And I think that that any sort of change, if I haven't had to think about if for, for 10 years, my group has always met on the third floor of XYZ building on campus. And now you're saying, because Tim's joining our group, I have to move my meeting to the first floor. Like that's, that's a change. And is it really that big of a deal? No, but if you've always met on the third floor of XYZ building, change is, is scary because you don't know if we move it to first floor, is it going to be too loud? Is this going to be disruptive? Is that going to be disruptive? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about with the consistency, though, right? Because people like to be able to predict the future or at least have a sense that they can, I would I would imagine, whether it's the group of people or not, too. And I... I'm just I'm I'm still just fascinated like what what is it about the change that's scary because I've wondered that myself like okay is is it that I don't know what's going to happen yet at the same time when I can tweak my brain a little bit and go this is going to be different but that's also equally as exciting for me because you might get a different result you know or or something like that people in a weird way I think people fear standing out mm. and ask let me, let me use an example from when I was back in high school. Um, we had a tradition on my high school track team where if we won the meet, we would take a victory lap as a team. Well, I move slower. I, I do. And we, no one, when I was a freshman, no one told our senior class, slow down. No one said stretch out the victory lap so that Tim can can keep up. Um, it probably looked awkward. Why are those guys taking four minutes to walk 400 meters around it? It probably looked weird. It probably looked they stood out. Why are you still there? Why are you still doing things this way? Um, but I think people don't people don't want to stand out. They don't want to get 
pointed at. They don't want to. They're, there's a fear in standing out. And when you do things differently, sometimes you stand out. And maybe that's for good reasons. But there's also, when you're standing out, it's an easy place for people to take shots at you too. Yeah. Do you feel like you have some a, a gift with that a little bit in the sense that because you're in a wheelchair and the majority of people aren't, that you 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 you've literally had a life of practice of being able to stand out and know what that feels like where you can help other people maybe overcome that in some ways. I suck at blending in. <laughs> I am really bad at blending. No, no matter how hard I try, any room that I walk into, I am not going to blend in very <laughs> Right. <laughs> Me conspicuously sneaking out of a room is not going to happen. Um, I, I had to own that a long time ago because I, I won't fit by any traditional definition. So at some point, I have to own that and have enough faith and trust in what I want to go do to, to make that happen. Um, and trust those communities around me, the, those places where I really feel like I belong, to know that I can do it my own way and I've got enough people who have my back that if I feel miserably, and I might, I'm going to have people to fall back on and go, we'll try that a different way next time. Yeah. So uh, you have created environments or friendships at every university. I would imagine every university you've been to just knowing who you are, but I would also imagine that maybe going to a new place right off the bat would, would be hard. How long does it take for you to build a community of your own? Um, of belonging at each new university you go to? I would say probably at least a year. Okay. Uh, I have at least a year. It's this weird experience of, um, have you ever, and, and if I'm geeking out on this, just yell at me and I'll stop. <laughs> um, there's, this, there's this conception of identity called the model of multiple dimensions of identity. If you Google it, it looks like a fifth grade science project. Um, it looks like one of those things you do when you're creating the solar system. Um, oh, oh, so I think I know what you're talking about, but keep keep going. I want to. What it basic on a on a basic level, what it says is that depending on the environment that you're in, different pieces of your identity will show themselves as more relevant. Um, and so. When I go to a new place, my disability is once again put front and center. By the time I left uh, North Dakota State, disability was still there, but it was much further in the background because I knew I knew who could help me solve problems. I knew who to call if I got stuck in the snow. I knew who could help me navigate at the rec center when the elevators didn't work. Um, I knew how to navigate through those problems. When I went to a new place, when I went to Oklahoma State in 2014, um, I had to relearn all those things. So the fact that I was limited came much more back to the forefront of, of who I was. And so I always go through this experience of where I feel very, very vulnerable, very out there, 
um, very, very conscious of, uh, of my disability. And then as I'm in that place longer, as I build those relationships, like you're talking about, as I start to create that community, um, that piece of who I am never goes away, but it gets to, to recede, it gets to um, start to, to fall back and I get to let other parts of who I am, whether it's the professional educator part or the athlete part or the, the social activist part, whatever part it is, um, gets to come more to the front because the disability part is kind of settled in and, and moved to the back. So if, if that's scary and vulnerable, where, which is an uncomfortable place for most people, what makes you keep that's jumping in? Yeah, what makes you keep jumping into that pool of anxiety and, and vulnerability? That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think a couple things. I think it's being able to reflect on those experiences and, and realize how each one of those has helped me grow. Um, and knowing that in the end, all of the places I've gone, I feel like I've ultimately had success. Um, it will be scary and uncomfortable up front, but eventually I get to a point where, where it's second nature. And I'll, I'll use an example uh, from when I was at Oklahoma State. When I was there, um, I worked a year in the student conduct office, but I spent four of my five years there doing student-athlete academic advising, specifically with football. And I'll, there was a time, I my very first team meeting that I went to, um, I have very rarely ever been more aware of my limitations than I was in that moment. Here I am sitting in a room full of 130 football players, who you're, you're, and you were a Division One athlete, you know, as a Division One scholarship athlete, you are there because of what you can do physically. Right. Fast, you can jump high, you can lift heavy things. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely there because of what you can do with your, your physical body. And um, incredibly, like, what are these guys going to think of me? Am I going to have any credibility? Am I going to be in a position to even though academic advising has nothing to do with what I can do physically, that's, that's how these guys measure success. Um, and so that was early on in my career there. There was a situation two or three years later where um, our elevators broke. This is apparently a theme in my life. <laughs> the elevator seems to break. Right. Um, but uh where there were two or three days when our elevators were down in the academic center. And without a second thought, I had guys volunteering to come down and walk one in front and one behind um, as I made my way up the stairs so I wouldn't fall. Um, so at the very beginning of this experience, I'm hyper aware of the things I can't do, of physical limitations. But over that time, as I had built relationships with those guys, and they had gotten to see more of the full picture of who Tim is, the fact that they were helping me up the stairs didn't matter. It didn't diminish that I could still help them find the right math class Yeah. when I, when I got there. Um, and so I think that that's, 
being able to go through those experiences and know this is going to suck and be really uncomfortable at, at some point in my early transition to a new place. I'm going to call my family and my friends and I'm going to go, what in the world am I doing? Why am I here? This is insane. Um, in Fargo, that's when it snowed on Halloween. I was like, what the hell? Right. You, have, you have seven out, seven inches of snow in October. Um, why did I think this was a good idea? Um, but, but it's knowing that if you can get through that, if you can continue to build and struggle through some of that challenge, there are beautiful things on the other side. There are relationships and connections and growth that is awesome. Um, and that that's like, as an athlete, there's times I don't want to work out because and it's early. Um, but the success on the other side can be awesome. The ability to move your body in a new way can be awesome. And so I think it's trusting the process and, um, well, you've had success, right? Like you've had lots of, lots of success doing that so far. So I think success, but also just knowing how amazing that feeling of, of belonging can be. Well, I consider that success though. Like, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I get, I get, it depends how you measure success. I guess I've always measured success as like being able to wake up and go to sleep and being able to do whatever you wanted in between and having authentic connection mixed in there yeah, throughout absolutely. the whole thing. So, but like, it sounds like all these, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but almost everything you're doing is to create more connection and more belonging, not just with other people, but within yourself too. Am I correct there? You are. Um, you are. One caveat I would give to that is that I, I have a belief that you, you can't be the fullest version of yourself without other people. So I, I need that sense of community and connection to ultimately be the best version of who I'm going to be. So you say you can't be the fullest version of yourself without other people. Is yeah. That you said? I'm just going to write that down because that's beautiful. Hmm. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example of that from yeah. that same experience of when I was at that first team meeting at OSU. Um, so we're going through introductions or whatever. And the um, in their team room, the, the offensive linemen, who are the biggest dudes in the room, in the back row. And when my boss introduced me as a new person, they went absolutely nuts, just cheering, going crazy, yelling and screaming. And I needed, I needed that. I needed that reassurance from those guys in that moment to be like, okay, I belong here. Yeah. To, to have a, okay, like there's still going to be struggles. There's still going to be things that we got to figure out. But, but without, I couldn't have belonged there without that reassurance of those people. So you need other people to be the fullest version of yourself. Do you remember, do you remember when you first started like sitting 
in that anxiety pool and going, oh, this is going to be good. I just have to, I just have to sit here. I've, I had a therapist once tell me that the, she called it an anxiety pool, just if I keep saying it over and over, but she explained it like, it's like getting into a hot tub. The first time you get into a hot tub, it's really hot. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go all the way down. You know, if I go waist down my, you know, my bits and pieces are going to be in the water. It's going to hurt a whole bunch. She's like, but if you can sit in it long enough, your body will adapt and the hot tub's going to feel awesome. So she always she always explained anxiety in the same way as if you're in an uncomfortable situation or something that doesn't feel right right off the bat, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, if you can just sit in the anxiety pool long enough, the anxiety will dissipate and things will get better. So I like, do you remember when you had that faith and trust to sit in that like uncomfortable place and just know things were going to get better. Did, did you learn that in high school, before high school, after high um, school? Really? Honestly, I would say after high school, I would say like freshman year of college. Okay. And part of it was because I'm competitive as all get out. And, <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> um, in, in everything, be it athletics, be it whatever you want to, if, if I'm playing, I'm playing to win. Um, but I, I think about the, the challenges I had my freshman year of college. And because um, that was really the first time I was on my own for an extended period of time. I went to college about 90 miles north of where my parents lived. And so. So you were forced. So it wasn't a conscious decision for that first time. Like you were forced into an anxiety pool, kind of. I, I was forced into an anxiety pool, but the competitive part of me was like, I I can't fail. Like I, I have to deal with what is uncomfortable. I I have to and you ha- and for me it was it was taking the, the small win. It was um okay, I'm not connected to everybody, but I made one friend today. I connect yeah. one one group today. And if tomorrow I connect to another one, um I I kept it really simple for myself that first year where I, I had a challenge for myself where I had to do three things every day. Hmm. I had to do something physical because I knew I liked that. I had to do something social, so connect with another person. And because we were in school, I had to do something academic. So I had to do something academic, physical, and social every day. And... I tried to stay disciplined in that and through that started to build relationships because I was doing something physical. I was connecting with people at the gym because I was making it, even if they were small efforts, I was connecting with somebody socially. So what did connection look like to you? Like if you're doing the, the social piece of it, like what kind of things were you doing that would tick that box for you? Um, it depended on the day. Sometimes it was going to a, a student organization meeting. Sometimes it was, uh, going to an athletic event. Sometimes it was sitting with somebody new in the dining hall, be it like walking up to a stranger and being like, no one's sitting with you. Can I, can I sit here? Like, did you get any no's ever? Um, I got some people that got up and laughed. Really? I got some people they felt like they were too nice to say no, but they just like stood up and laughed. <laughs> yeah. Walking. Man, I was just wondering because for most people, the the idea of rejection is what keeps them from doing that, right? And but I've also read and through, I don't know if you remember my buddy Brad Hardsock, but we would do weird 
things where we'd be dressed like ninjas and go high five strangers in the park or something, you know, something ridiculous where it was super uncomfortable. Well, why do I feel like your life is one walking psych- psychology experiment? <laughs> I, it kind of is, I guess. Like they, I have certain friends, you know, where you, especially Brad back then, but it was like, let's go to the Renaissance festival, but dress like ninjas and then just mm-hmm. see what people say. Cause we couldn't find astronaut costumes. Cause we thought, well, let's go the other direction with it and just, uh, for us, it was always fun to just do something absurd that wouldn't that that doesn't match reality or the way things are supposed to be. And I've got that in me for sure. But um, but I also have that. Oh, I don't know if I should ask that girl out; she might reject me. And then the other part of my brain is going. But if you don't even try, the answer is going to be no. You know, kind of an idea. I, at the moment, you shouldn't ask any girls out because clearly it would be mad. No, yeah, right now. But I'm, I'm. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope, no more asking girls out. Only carry on on dates, and hopefully she doesn't say no. I'm good. I support you in that. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think that, that that's very true. I think that. The fear of rejection is is huge. Um, so I guess fear. I was ask, how did you overcome that? Like, I you were so focused on these tasks that it it didn't matter. You were you needed to check that box. I part of me wanted to check that box. Uh, part of this is is a credit to my family, and I know that not everybody comes from the the kind of family structure um, and foundation that I do, but. I knew they always had my back. Okay. Even, uh, even if things went miserably at college that day, like they'd still take my call. Yeah. They'd probably end the conversation by get out there tomorrow and do it again. But, but they, uh, they always had my back, and I'm always able to. I can, I can build off small wins. I can build off of, okay, today was a train wreck, but two days ago I had success. So clearly I know how to do this on some level. Um, and, I, and I think being able to, one of the things, I had a high school track coach, and one of the things he used to always say to motivate us was, remember when, and he did this from a performance standpoint, but it was always, remember when you were at your best, and be there again, put yourself there again. And so knowing that I'd had success in the past, okay, I can go do it. I didn't do it today, but I've done it before. So I know I'm yeah. capable of, of doing it. In uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, they talk about that being called evidence. So like you can have this thought in your head, right? So like for my, my example, it'd be if I'm, I should go sit with that person. I want to check off my box and I want to connect with another human being and try and discover who I'm, who I really am. And I need other people to help me do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you got that thought that's going, they're going to reject me. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to leave. They're going to feel judged and they're going to go away. But then in cognitive behavioral therapy, you go, well, that's a thought. How realistic is that thought? And then you go, well, I have 30 other experiences where people are sat and had lunch with me and you know we, we were able to connect on this level and now we go to football games together or whatever so like it, it just sounds like over time you got so much evidence of it working like even the little kinks like pebbles hitting your you know your 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 humvee they were just bouncing right off because you're like man 
this that was just one bad day out of the 30 good days I've had. Well, yeah, and I think about, I mean, I think about even when you and I started training together, um, our training approach was very different than anything I had ever done. Yeah. Um, but I remember distinctly because going into that first fall training with you, uh, my best half marathon was two hours and 12 minutes. Um, and I thought coming into that, that first race, that first October after we'd been training for a couple of months, I thought it was in like 205, 210 kind of shape. And I went 158.40. Like, all right, there's day Sean sounds like a crazy person. Something's <laughs> yeah. working. Like we're something's working. This this isn't putting the pedal to the metal every day like I'm used to. This isn't putting up huge weights on the bench press like I was used to, but I'm going faster. Yeah something something is working and i think trust then you had evidence right whether you have to yeah. you really have to, to trust the process and that's um and that's true anytime you tackle whether it's a physical activity uh, whether it's a new job being able to to trust the process when you um i've started open doors consulting um I've, I've had some, not as much success as I've wanted yet, but being able to come on, do things like this podcast and go, somebody believes in it. Sean wouldn't have let me come spend an hour, hour and a half talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Do, if, I, he, if, it, if he didn't think it had potential, like someone believes in it. And so it can't be that terrible of an idea. Uh, yeah. What made you have trust the process with all that crazy training we were doing? What made you go, all right, let's roll the dice on this guy and, and his crazy things? Because I and I can't remember, but I there was one point where I it might have been you, but I'm I could have said it too. We're like, let's see if we can do a pull up. <laughs> you know, I remember. Yeah. The, I I think that was that you or did I suggest that weird? I, I think it's one of those where we probably both looked at each other like, all right. Let's, yeah, let's give it a shot because at the time, um, like you you had an arm that could go straight and then you had one that was pretty pretty tight like muscularly, and it so still it still is. And so first we had to be able to hang from the bar, right? Like yeah. that was step one, and we weren't even close, if I remember right. We. Nope. We tried. And then we once we started doing some of that stretching exercise stuff, we're like if if anyone's curious about their training, we do like a hard day and then we do have like a mobility day the next day, which wasn't the most comfortable in the world. But um the way you explained how your race works is we needed range of motion so you could put more force into the into your your yeah, rims of you, your chair. You when you push a racing chair, you think of your rim as like a clock face and the more of the clock that you can cover before you have to restart your motion, the more efficient you're going to be because you can take fewer pushes to cover more distance. Yeah. And and so that's where you blew my bigger. mind because you were an 800 racer at the time. Yeah, four, four, 400 and 800. Four and eight. And then you do, and then I was like, well, that's easy. I can train an eight and a four. And you're like, ah, we're kind of sprinters that just do a longer race. And that was where the tweet came in. I was like, oh, we need to train Tim like a sprinter, like a hundred meter guy 
and come well, yeah, because if you're when you do a race that's on the roads, for example, like if I'm doing a, a half marathon race on the road, when I'm going downhill, I'm essentially resting. Yeah. But when I when I get to the bottom of that hill and I have a 50 meter stretch of flat before I have to start going uphill again, I want to generate as much momentum in that 50 meters so I can carry it up that next uphill is as humanly possible. So that's where the, the sprinting analogy comes into play. Yeah, but in that but that was what was like really beautiful about working with you because I had no idea how to I've never trained a, a wheelchair athlete or I, I might not even be saying that right but you you're know good, you're good, you're good. okay and so then it was like okay well i do know track and field i i've got that down and i'm pretty much going to school just so i can understand track and field more so this is perfect in that respect <laughs> and so then when you started explaining it like that then it was like oh well if if i didn't have the range of motion or if i didn't wasn't putting force where it needed to go how can we help tim do that with with the tools he's got at his disposal. And that's what we did. And there were, I mean, we were throwing med balls and stuff and you're like, never done this before. We'll see how this goes. And we were, but the pull-up thing always kind of racks my brain because after I left, you sent me a video of you. I, I think you did a full pull-up or a couple of them, or at least you're hanging on. The I, I can do, I can do like three. Yeah. So we started by not even be able to hang on it to you doing three. And it was like, Holy crap, this is, this is amazing. You know, to, to me, it was just one to have an athlete like you who was willing to trust this crazy stuff that I was putting out there. And then two, actually putting in the work, which is the hardest part for any trainer, I think, especially, um, I mean, you hear about it all the time with those guys who come in for their new year's resolution and they make it two weeks and then they never come back. Like that's, that's super frustrating. And you weren't like that at all. You were like, Sean, I need to come in a half hour early, you know, and so instead of 5.30 in the morning, I need to come in at 5. I was like, okay, <laughs> get up a little earlier and get, and get Tim's workout because there was no way I was going to let you miss a – or, like, stop your motivation in any way, shape, or form. Well, but I think one of the things that relates so much to that is – and I, I even talk to students about this in a, a non-athletic context with the students I'm working with now um, – Consistency beats perfection every time. Yeah. Continuing to to come back, continuing to work at something, because too often, if a, for example, if a student misses class and they're like, well, dang, I missed my biology class on Monday. What's the point of going Wednesday or Friday? Well, now you've created a snowball right. of that. And so um, that's the... Like, I think that that's one of the mindsets I've always tried to bring is that consistency, continuing to work at it, will, I'm not going to have a great day, but uh, what's going to set me apart is that I keep, I keep coming back, I keep working at it. And same thing is true, you talked about rejection in those, in those relationships. Yeah, some people are like, dude, you're crazy, knock it off. Um, like, that might happen, but if I keep coming back day after day after day, a semester's long enough that if I make one friend a day, I'm going to make a lot of friends. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, that idea that con consistency tops perfection is really something I tried to think about. 
did did that happen at in college too or was that something so like when did you start the to race wheelchairs was that in in high school Uh, i got introduced to the sport when i was 12 um funny story i did not want to go to the camp at all (laughs) my parents were like you should go i was so scared to go because it was new it was different i didn't know if i'd be good at it um i did not want to go what kind of a camp was it it was an adaptive sports camp. Adaptive sports, okay. They we what we would do it was based in Des Moines, Iowa, and they would um, we would do in the mornings we would do some sort of adaptive sport like track or basketball or volleyball or something. Then in the afternoons they would teach us life skills, so navigating with the chair. How do you transfer from in your chair to out of your chair? How do you? Um, carry your stuff across the bathroom so you can take a shower? How do you um, pack a suitcase? Like, so the the mornings were always about sports and the stuff I cared about. And then the afternoons were always about like life skills and that kind of stuff. Um, so I was 12 uh, when I went to that camp and got, got exposed to racing. And then when I was 15, Uh, When I went into high school, when I was like, I can actually do varsity level sports now if I'm good enough. Yeah. But I really uh, got serious, started training consistently, and uh, and really started to to work at it. And I give so much credit to uh, my high school track coach, Coach Brown, because he he took those small wins. Um, Most people would go. Why is watching a six-minute 800 exciting? And his answer was, because last week, Tim went 610. Today, he went six minutes flat. And a week from now, he's going to go 530. And I remember this story from my freshman year. Um, I finished fourth in the 800 at the state meet. And we had had a goal all year long, because when I started doing 800s, my first 800 I ever did was five minutes and 38 seconds. That's a really Yeah, (laughs) and we had a goal as the year went on he kept saying let's see if we can can break the the five minute mark and the week before the state meet i went 508 so i knew i was and the weather sucked so i knew i was close um and at state my freshman year i did the 804 minutes and 44 seconds and he was on the rail going nuts as if i had won a state championship when i finished Because he saw the progress and he instilled the value of progress is the important thing. And it goes back to, I shared at the beginning how I always had this mindset of build on what you have. Like if you did a five minute 800 last week, 444 is better. It's not, it's not the end, but moving forward. And I I think that that, that idea of, that's where that idea of consistency and continuing to work and valuing those, those small wins um, made, made the difference or, or being able to see, see the positive. Um, to use a, a non-athletics example from like life, um, when I was in North Dakota, I get stuck in uh, – I'd get stuck in snow drifts a lot because we had a lot of snow. A lot of snow, yeah. <laughs> and so 
And that part sucked. Like getting stuck in the snow, no fun. But every time someone would come help me get out. And it's like, okay, getting stuck in the snow was terrible, was not at all enjoyable. But there's a human being out there who cared enough to help. Like there there is good. There there are people that that care. Um when I when I lived in Oklahoma, um I um I got hit, uh somebody ran a red light and, and hit my chair when I was crossing the street. Um and that was terrible. Uh when you have to call your parents and go, I got hit by a truck. I'm not a huge yeah. fan. Right. Uh, I didn't that, know that happened, not, man. That's not the call any parent wants to get. Um but the um, the number of, well, first of all, I had a boss that, because I wanted to go, I got hit by a truck and I wanted to go back to work the same night. I was like, I want to go back. I want to think. She stood in my doorway and said, no, she stood in the doorway of my apartment. And she's like, either you tell me you're not going to come out this door. I'm going to stand here until you tell me that you do. Wow. Um, but the, and the number of guys and this was the week that Oklahoma State played Oklahoma. So a big, big game for them, their biggest game of the year. And the number of guys that interrupted their pregame routine to send me a text message and say, here you got hit, are you good? Like that getting hit by a truck was terrible. Going through some of these experiences sucked, but there are good people. There are people that, that care. There are relationships that matter and being able to um, have those happen even in the spot, even in spite of these terrible situations hmm. um, has been something that I've always been able to find the good in, in something. Yeah. I, I call those beautiful sadnesses because it's like this terrible thing happened, but there's something beautiful about it too. Almost in the same, I I use it with people who like lose somebody, whether it's a relationship or a loss. Like, and I I'm stealing this from South Park to be honest with you, but they they said there was an episode where Butters got broken up with the girl who worked at uh, I forgot what it was. It wasn't it wasn't Hooters. It was like a joke of Hooters, whatever she was. She was just flirting with them, and they thought they were dating. But he goes, yeah, and I'm sad, but I. But I know that to feel this sad, I must have felt something equally as good on the other side. So it's like a beautiful sadness, you know, and I know yours is flipped on the other side where like the sad thing happened first, getting hit by a truck. But like it created this beauty of people helping you out of a snowbank or you know, getting a hold of you to, uh, you know, for the pregame or standing yeah. in the in the hallway. And, you know, thanks to South Park, you know, now I have a term for it, beautiful sadness or whatever. But like it's. It makes me smile hearing that because it, it makes me find something not necessarily positive, but but beautiful in those crappier, shitty moments in your life. Only only in a conversation with Sean Francis can we quote both Gandhi and South Park. <laughs> same, same conversation, right? <laughs> you can find inspiration anywhere, man. One hundred percent. Totally agree. Yeah, uh, man, that's 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 pretty wild. Can I ask you another question? 
Tim, yeah. what, what's the, what's the end goal for you here? I, I mean, you know, you talked about like, you can't be the fullest version of yourself without others, right? Like I'm, I love that you said that, but like, what, what are you chasing? Like, what are you, what are you trying to go after? What's your, what's your mission here? What's keeping you motivated? I think on the, on the most basic level, it's do what I can to make my little corner of the world a little bit better every day. Um, it's, it's due, whether it's advancing a conversation around accessibility, whether it's, um, providing, uh, support and motivation for a student that needs it, um, whether it is improving myself physically as, as an athlete, whether it's being a better friend, reaching out, making a connection to somebody who, who, who needs, needs friendship, needs a smile. Uh, do what I can to to make the world better and, and sometimes it's in a big tangible way like with Open Doors Consulting um, sometimes it's with a conversation with a student or staff person who stops from my office um, it, it's going to look different every day but if I can do what I can to make the world better and and feel like I did that, then, then I'm okay with that. Do you think about that every day, like before you go to bed or something like that? Do you think back and be like, did I, did I, what did I do today to make the world better? Or here's something I did today. Or do you, do you reflect on that very often? Or is it always just this conscious throughout your day and every moment you're like always looking for opportunities just to th- throw a little spice on life, you know, <laughs> even if it's for other people? No, I would I would say it's more at the beginnings and the endings of days, kind of in those reflective moments. I wouldn't say that it's conscious throughout the day. It's um, as I when I have those times, either the quiet moments in the beginning or the end, to say, did I do did I do what I could? Have I maximized the the opportunity that I had? Um, one of one of the quotes that I, I try and live by is actually on the wall in my office. Uh, and it says, uh, and I, I don't know who said it, so I apologize, but uh, today I gave it all I had, what I've kept, I've lost forever. And you, you really get, you have one chance to maximize whatever today presents you. With. And whether that's, building my business, whether that's supporting my students, whether that's having success as an athlete, whether that's improving uh, friendships and, and building relationships, whatever that looks like today, I have one chance to, to make today the best it can be because once today is over, tomorrow starts. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like throughout this entire conversation, it's almost always been about helping other people, trying to almost outside of yourself. And I know Carrie, Carrie, right when I met her, she was in school and she said, she asked me this question because the teacher asked her, like, is there any selfless deeds out there? And man, that threw my head into a tornado for a long time because it's like even helping other people makes you feel good. So it's not. 100% 100% a selfless deed at that point, right? By giving something to somebody else, like it, it makes you feel better. And then I used to fight that for a while. Like, can that be 
it, it felt negative, like, oh, I'm not being 100% for somebody else, or uh, it, it felt like it was tarnished. And then I was like, but a win-win situation is the, probably the best case scenario at that point, right? Like one, one, uh, one deed or one thing that you're doing improves the lives of two people, even if it's yourself. D- does that make sense at all? So do you feel like while you're doing this, like you're getting um, some fulfillment out of it at the same time while helping other people? Because as I said throughout this podcast, it seems like that's what your mission has been is how do I help other people and like have, have a better life, you know, and feel, even if it's a wave, <laughs> something as small as a wave or, you know, creating a, a consulting business to help create groups of people that can have this massive impact. I think, I mean, you're right. I, I do get a lot. I, I feel so lucky to, to have the relationships. I mean, you and I were laughing kind of before we started this conversation of like, we trained together in what, 2011, 2012. So yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and, but because of the connection we built, we've kept a friendship. Like I've, I've had the opportunity to build so many great relationships, get to know so many great people. Like, I've gained more than I could ever get um, that opportunities to make change in the area of accessibility. I've had a chance to sit with um, significantly, like I've, I've been given amazing platforms to do the work that I, I do um, that I've, I've gotten more out of life than that I could ever give to it. And I, I just want to continue every day to, to give back what I can. Do you feel guilty about that at all? Or... Um, I think I wouldn't say I feel guilty. I think it serves as a motivating factor. You you ask about how do I, when do I think about those things? Yeah. For me, when I wake up, every day starts at zero. Um, and I, I've got a, it's it's my job to to fill that day with as much good as much positive um as much productive in whatever form that takes um as i as i can and is it um what i do for my own self at the gym is it unintentionally motivating someone else because they see a guy in a chair and they're like well dang if he's doing pull-ups i should right um like is it a student that I have a conversation with? Is it a colleague that I have a conversation with? Um, I don't. I don't feel guilty for it, but I think it serves as a motivator to be like, okay, I've gotten all this. Now I got to turn around and use what I have to help other people. Yeah, I, I only ask because you might have provided some wisdom for me. Because like I, I run my pole vault camps throughout the year, or. You know, these mental, a lot of things where it seems to be helping a lot of other people. And so when people pay for a pole vault camp and you have 20 or 30 kids there and you help them pole vault, they PR and they do all these things. And then I leave going, man, that was really fun that I had a blast. I got to meet all these kids. I just connected with 30 kids and somehow I connected with them enough in just two or three days that 
you know, they're sending me videos for the rest of their life or just telling me about how their college is going, you know, like you create a connection. And then there's, I know it's a thought process, probably some pattern that happened in my past, but there's like guilt there. Like, should I be enjoying this this much because they paid for it? You know what I mean? So that's the only reason I ask because there's, I'm wrestling with that in my head sometimes. Uh, I, I totally get you, but I mean, I think about, I mean, we train 6.30 a.m. 10 years ago. Yeah. I I still send you texts when I have a good race, have a bad race, have a cool workout, have a workout that was complete trash. Like, oh, for, Even for the people who don't know, you send me a text every week just wishing me a good week on Monday. Like, And if and if a week or two goes by where I don't get it, I'm like, holy crap, I hope Tim's okay. I should probably reach out to him make sure he's not st- – Stuck in a snowbank or something, you know. That's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's. Um, but that's the type of guy you are, you know. Like you've always kind of been like that, and that's why I like this conversation has been so rewarding. Is because I don't know if you remember Riley um, from NDSU. He was a jab thrower. Really, those are. Yeah. Yep, you remember. Right. So, but we've had this conversation where we've we've go. I really want to reach out to people, but I feel like I'm bothering them. So then it's like one of those weird thoughts in your head. And what I've been trying to do, and it's what's been really successful, is just ignoring it and trusting that first instinct. You know, like, I'm going to send this person a text or give them a call. Make sure they're, you know, just let them know I'm thinking about them. And almost every time it's been like that connection is just stronger because of that instead of ignoring it. And so that's why it's like you seem to – that's what I've been kind of poking at it this entire conversation is when did that develop and like, how did that all come about? And it sounds like once you got pushed into college and you're almost forced, forced to you know, like create these, you know, relationships and, and, and things like that. I think, I think college was huge. I think, um, yeah, I think, I, I think college was, was a, a massive piece of it. Uh, I always reflect on, I've talked about my freshman year on the track team and I, I still give credit and I, I still talk to these guys to, the, to this day. Um, the group of guys that were seniors on that team that had never had a teammate that used a chair and the number of things they did to make me feel like I fit, make me feel like I belong. Um, was a reinforcement that someone and and pardon my language, I don't I don't mean to swear, but someone out there gave it. Yeah, someone out there took an interest, and I might reach out to to somebody, and they might be like, "Stop bothering me." But someone out there is going to care. Someone out there is going to appreciate that outreach, that connection, and and I only need. I only need that one. Um, you know, from an athlete's perspective, one good performance can fuel you for a year's worth of training because you want to get back to that level. You want, you want to improve. Yeah. And feel the same way about relationships and connections. Hmm. You give me one that, that matters, I'll try and make more. I love that. I don't think you, you could have said that any better. I think you just tied it all together for me, man. <laughs> it's it's beautiful though that you keep going back to those seniors you're in high school that 
maybe that was the start of it to be honest with you and i don't and you know i'm i'll quit poking at it after this but i mean they gave you that gift to know what that felt like and it sounds it sounds like that's you're trying to give that to other people now based on the impact it had on you at that time you know the to to feel like you belong in whatever community it is is an exceptionally powerful feeling So is it wrong to say that's where a lot of your motivation is coming from is to try and create that feeling, not just for yourself, but other people too? That's I, I think that's spot on. Okay. I 100% think that's spot on. Huh. Tim, I think I just learned more about you than I did when we were training together for two years. <laughs> well, that's because it was like 6 a.m. and we didn't speak. We just lifted heavy things. Yeah, lifted heavy and tried to not throw up the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that too. Well... Tim, we're at we're already at ninety minutes, man. Is there is there anything else you'd like to say or or um? I just think, and I was thinking about this uh, before we came on tonight. I, I think we've talked so much about connection in the last hour and a half, um, and I think this conversation and, and our friendship over the course of the last ten years is is a testament to to that. I mean. Connection is a powerful thing, and um, the sense of belonging that that creates is an equally powerful thing. And I think that um, whatever we can do in our world to, to increase those feelings for as many people as possible, only good things can happen. Open Doors Consulting. Guys, go check it out. Tim is the best. He's creating these tribes of awesomeness for people. So go check that out. If you like what I'm doing, share these around as I as I think they're they're pretty powerful and can help a lot of other people. So if you know somebody or a podcast guest that might you might think is interesting that you think I should talk to or I would enjoy talking to, send them my way. I'd love to hear what you got. Until next time, life is meant to be experienced and curiosity will get you there. <laughs>